So Tim and I have been leading this premarital class for about 10 years. We call it Good Fights, Good Sex, Preparing for Marriage. Many of you have come through that class, but it's a highlight of ministry for us for sure. All the people that we've met and just that opportunity twice a year in the spring and in the fall to gather with people who are at that seriously dating or engaged stage of life and and share some of our stories from uh, our journey of 15 years and to bring in other um, people who have been married longer and to let them share their stories. It's just been a highlight for us. But one thing I've sort of noticed or just observed through the years is um, when I'm observing just emotional and spiritual health in relationships, it seems that emotional and spiritual health Uh, starts with a person's self-concept. It's almost like a well-built house has a good, solid foundation, and largely, a well-built life has a solid self-concept. Because to succeed in relationships, really of any kind, not just romantic, but of any kind, you have to have a sense of who you are, of your identity. You have to have a sense of your worth so that you're not constantly looking for your worth in other people. And the strongest identity, I believe, is one that's deeply grounded in a person understanding that they are deeply loved by God. Because to develop strong, lasting bonds with another person, you have to be authentic. You uh, can't be pretending. In this series, we're talking a lot about the life of Jacob, a character in the Bible who does a lot of pretending. But to have strong, lasting bonds, uh, you can't be a person who's just tossed in the wind like a plastic bag. You have to be able to make courageous decisions that are consistent with your own values. To not be a person who abdicates and tries to please everyone and appease everybody else. Really to build a great love story in the context of premarital, you have to be able to say, I'm not just going to be blown around by every whim of my emotions because I have values that guide me when my emotions blow through. And those values are almost like guardrails in my life. And they keep me from falling in the ditches that my emotions sometimes would take me otherwise. So the Apostle Paul, who wrote major sections of the Bible, said this, therefore we are always confident. It's a peculiar peculiar thing to say. And it makes you wonder, how do you be always confident? How could he say that? What does that look like? What does that mean? A lot of times in life, um, you know, we reach adulthood, and like Jacob, we are still carrying with us emotional and spiritual baggage from our lives. I didn't feel loved when I was young, or I am hurt because I wasn't the favorite in my family. I can't express emotion because there was just too much distance in my family. Or I don't know how to do conflict because we always avoided conflict in my house. Or I have a a lot of trouble with authority and authority figures. 
um, and I just have this defiant rebelliousness about me. In other words, some way, some version, I have this hole in my heart, I have this hole in my life that I am trying to get filled. And sometimes people will get married and they will think, ha-ha, now finally that hole will get filled. And usually that lasts for like two minutes. Works for a couple days maybe. And then we come crashing into this reality that marriage does not resolve my problems because marriage reveals them. It doesn't resolve them, it just reveals them, it uncovers them. This week I um, was very moved, but we have some friends who live in Washington who we've known for a long time, and um, they just celebrated their 19-year wedding anniversary, and theirs has not been an easy road relationally, and uh, so the woman in this relationship posted on social media a little bit of the story. I, I just want to share this with you. These are our friends, uh, Jody and Andy. She wrote this on their 19-year wedding anniversary. She said, the kids had our car. They have six kids. <laughs> the kids had our car. We had a one-and-a-half-hour window, so Andy and I hopped in the VW bus, a bit begrudgingly, to grab a quick dinner for what we were going to call our anniversary celebration. The fumes in the bus make me dizzy, and it's freezing in there, so I asked if we could just go to the closest place. We ordered water and a pizza, and we fought mostly through dinner and hardly touched the pizza at all. We headed home so we could be there to have the evening come to Jesus meeting with the teenagers and then to get the littler, littler ones settled into bed. We snapped this quick photo in the dark bus. This is 19. Happy anniversary. Brene Brown calls it the long, dark middle. Jonathan Fields calls it the unfortunate middle. Fields talks about this in stages, mostly in relation to careers, but they apply really to relationships in nearly every story in our lives. There's the beginning, the beginning point of simple grace. It's the start of something new. The shores are lined with waving and supportive crowds. The ship starts to sail into the calmer waters right against the shore, driven by the anticipation and hope and excitement. We start here. Some people stay, most don't. And we move eventually into that unfortunate middle where we can no longer see the shore and the light of the destination. The light of the destination is nowhere to be found. The financial runway is dark, it's quiet, it's lonely, it's a lot of work. By far, it is the most stressful, least rewarding stage a consuming cocktail of possibility and pain. And then she says, uh, this is too also so vivid in the parenting middle. If once driven there by cuddles, appreciation, affirmation, and sloppy kisses, our parenting propellers must find a different energy source to sustain the middle. The third stage is called sustainable complexity. We get there at different times and begin new journeys but we don't get here any other way except the unfortunate middle. So then she says about their anniversary date night, uh, we talked about it last night. 
We can't go back to the shores of simple grace. We can't and we don't want to. We are also not jumping ship. And there is also not an alternate route around or above or under the unfortunate middle as much as we have tried to steer the boat to find one. The only way out is through. This middle is not a place to be inhabited, but it does have to be passed through. We are going to have to surrender to the waves, stay the course, ask for help, steady the rocking boat with as much love and grace as we can muster. This is not forever. So yeah, from the middle of the bus, from our fume-filled bus, from the middle, this is 19 for us, and then she says, I love you, Andy. We're sailing on, mate. Ever find yourself in the unfortunate middle with God, with your career, with a person, maybe in parenting? We're going to look at a guy in the Bible again today who faces the unfortunate middle. Jacob runs away from home. He has this vision of God. He goes to where his uncle Laban lives and he sees this well. Now, in the ancient world, the well is kind of the place where boy meets girl stories happen. It's kind of like the match.com of the ancient world. So he goes to the well, and there's a flock of sheep there that belong to his uncle Laban. And they're being tended by Laban's daughter, Rachel. And the story goes like this from Genesis chapter 29. When Jacob saw Rachel daughter of his uncle Laban, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. Kind of an unusual dating approach. <laughs> I don't normally recommend, like, kiss her and start sobbing as the approach. But uh, that's what Jacob does. He is a long way from home. He's particularly vulnerable. Last week, we talked about vulnerability. Tim talked about it, about how having authority is important, but also vulnerability, and that combination of authority with vulnerability leads to flourishing. So Jacob, he's very vulnerable, and maybe he thinks, this is the woman who's going to fill this hole in my heart. And it turns out, that the tricky, greedy little Jacob that we learned about last week has a tricky, greedy little uncle named Laban. Laban is Rachel's father. So Laban invites Jacob to his home, allows him to work there. He works there for a month. And at the end of that time, Laban says to Jacob, um, as long as you're going to stick around, why don't we work out an arrangement whereby uh, you can work for me and get paid? So they basically are negotiating a salary. And Laban asks Jacob, what do you want? And Jacob says this. Um, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older one was Leah. The name of the younger one was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said this. I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, seven years of wages back then is equivalent um, to way more money than would normally have been given for a bride if, in that time in history. So the idea is that Jacob is like crazy, irrationally in love with this woman, Rachel. 
And the story goes on. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. He's not yet in the unfortunate middle, is he? Seven years. It's, it's just this picture of him dreaming of her, watching her, thinking of her, laying in bed, dreaming about her. I mean, just obsessed with her. And those seven years go by like nothing. And at the end of that time, Jacob goes to Laban. And he says, okay, now, you know, uh, let's, I, wa I want to have my wife. And there is a big feast. And apparently there is a ton of drinking at this feast. And here's what the Bible says happens next. But when evening came, Laban took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. When morning came, there was Leah. Now, I have talked to a lot of people through the years who are like, very early on in my marriage, I knew I had married the wrong person. But Jacob, that's like a whole new level of very early on, right? In the morning, there is Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Now, you've got to love this. There is something real deep going on here in this story. Because Jacob has been a deceiver since he was in the womb. Tim talked about that last week. His name means deceiver. It's how he got his name, grabber of the heel. He cheated his brother. He deceived his father. He connived with his mother. And now he says, frankly, Uncle Laban, I am shocked and appalled that you would be deceitful, that you would do such a thing, like the gall of you. But the scripture, the story goes on and says, Laban replied, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. Now, uh, you have to get the irony here, because it's a big part of the story. Here is what Jacob is learning. Um, last week, we see he is a trickster. He is a deceiver. Jacob was uh, the one who, uh, he tricked his father Isaac into thinking that, his young, that he really was the younger child in order to get the blessing. Um, and this week, there's a trickster in the story, but it's Laban. So this week, the victim is Jacob. Laban deceives Jacob into thinking that the older child, uh, Leah, was really the younger child. So it's like the, the con man is getting out-conned, is kind of what's happening here. And Jacob is beginning to learn just this kind of law of the universe, right? You, you, you reap what you sow. It's what the Apostle Paul puts it that way. You reap what you sow. He's beginning to realize he lives in a moral universe. He's beginning to learn that there is this other character in the story. God is the other character in the story. And while God is always with him, God is not always, God's love for him is always present. But God's love for him is not always protecting him from the pain of his own choices. And the reason for that is because 
God's number one priority is not his comfort. God's number one priority is not my comfort or your comfort either. So the story goes on. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. So you read the story and you're like, you think you have problems, right? Um, so we have to talk about Leah. So Jacob grew up thinking, I'm not Esau. Leah grew up thinking, I'm not Rachel. So when people were looking for like a hot date, they did not land on Leah's profile. She was not the one. It was Rachel was the beautiful one. She was the one with all the attention, with all of um, it, it, just all the beauty. And can you even imagine living in a world where like a woman's worth would be defined by her appearance? And that's a joke. That was supposed to be a joke. <laughs> You're like, but Rachel, um, she was one of all the one that you know all the boys wanted. And in that culture in particular. Uh, it was a culture where having children was like the only dream that a girl was raised to know. So where do you find your confidence? In marriage and in having babies. That was this culture. But when morning came, there was Leah. So can you imagine the pain behind that? Jacob is thinking he's getting Rachel, whom he loves, and in the morning there's Leah. And Leah is probably waking up that morning wondering, is he going to be kind? Is he going to understand that my father just tricked him? Is he going to be compassionate towards me? Is he going to be tender? And of course he's not. The main character in this story comes in for the first time um, in this whole chapter when it says, the Lord saw that Leah was not loved. The Lord saw that Leah was not loved. And it's just, to me, it's this picture of Rachel didn't see, Laban didn't see, Jacob didn't see. The Lord saw that Leah was not loved. And God acts and he cares and um, this identity that Leah has carried, the I'm not Rachel identity, I'm not the pretty one, I'm not the one Jacob loves, um, God sees that. And he just kind of, I'm going to do something for overlooked, underloved Leah. And she begins to have children in this story. And um, the story is very interesting. One author says this, this becomes basically a story of a woman yearning to be loved by her husband and not knowing how to make that happen. She is just wanting her husband to love her, and she doesn't know how to make that happen. So uh, the scriptures say, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Ugh, you just hear the pain in that. She thinks, surely now his eyes will see me. Surely now I will experience his love. Surely now this baby will fix our relationship, but it doesn't. And so the story goes on. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. And you just think about how our stories begin. 
so early in life with what our parents are experiencing, even when we were in the womb. Again, she conceived, and then she gave birth to a son, and then she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons, and so she names him Levi. And all these names and all these stories are just this ache and this wound and this, just this cry and this desire for love, but it doesn't happen. And the story goes on. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time... Here's a change. I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. So with the fourth child, she finally stops the heartbreaking pain that she can do something to get her husband to love her. The Lord saw that Leah was not loved. And it's just this picture of when we feel like nobody else sees, nobody else knows, God sees, and God knows, and God cares. And it goes on, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister, and so she said to Jacob, give me children or I will die. It's like a reasonable request, right? So Leah and Rachel... Um, start engaging in what one Old Testament scholar called baby wars. Baby wars, that's what happens. Who can have the most kids? And they're having their maids have kids with him. I mean, it just, it, it's pretty crazy. But um, this is not a story about human virtue. It is not a story about the character development of any one of these people. It's not a story about uh, the character development of Jacob or Esau or Rachel or Leah or uh, Laban. It's really about grace. This is a story about grace. It's about a God who looks at a wounded, frightened, I'm not Esau, man named Jacob, and says, I am with you, and I will be with you wherever you go. And it's a story about a God who sees a woman who's not Rachel, and who doesn't feel loved, and whose father would trick her sister's fiancé into believing that she was the bride. And the humiliation of that. This is a story about the unfortunate middle and God's presence there that he sees and he knows and he cares. It is also this picture of the relationship between um, self-acceptance, self-concept, your self-concept, and just what it looks like to be confident in God. Because like Tim pointed out last week, the last two weeks, so many things we can place our confidence in that fail us. In this story, it's this picture that there is nothing you have to achieve, that God sees you right exactly in your worst moment, that he cares, that he loves. It's this invitation to grace, to be known and seen by God at our worst, not like, let me clean things up and then come to God, 
let me get rid of this area of shame in my life and then, God, you can heal me? No, it's with shame and all coming into the light and allowing God to see me, know me, and care so that I might receive his healing right there. You know, I think a lot of times we accept God's love like right here in our heads, but it doesn't descend. It doesn't really descend to our hearts because we are so busy trying to prove our lovableness, our worthiness. There is a great poem by Mary Oliver that I uh, have come back to time and time again, and you may know it. It's called A Wild Geese. And the beginning of the poem, she says this, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. This poem is like this picture of allowing God to meet us exactly as we are. Not clean up my act first and then I'll let God's light shine in me. Then I'll, no. You do not have to be warts and all. That is grace. See, I can say I believe in the grace of God, but then keep trying to prove my worth, prove my acceptance, make myself acceptable, make myself lovable. You do not have to be good. The only grounds for confidence is this. You, right here in your life, are seen by God. You are known by God. God cares and God heals. That's the only grounds for confidence. That you bring your real self to a real God who sees and you open up the secret chambers of your heart, those places that you don't want anybody else to see or know or be aware of, those places that if we projected on the screen right now, you'd be mortified. You bring your real self to, to, to God. And you let him love you and heal you right there. You bring yourself into the light And then, like Paul, you can say, always confident. Because it's not about a performance. It's not about pretending. It's about you, right where you are, at your worst moment, being loved and seen and cared for by God. You know, when I think about confidence, and especially how Tim talked about it from Andy Crouch's book last last week, um, when I think about true confidence, that mix of authority and vulnerability together that leads to flourishing. There's a story that comes to mind. Um, It's an old story of a guy, Robertson McQuilkin. Uh, If you have ever heard of him, on the back of a book he wrote, it's a promise kept, he he identifies himself on the back of that book as a homemaker, but most people know him as a two decades long president 
of Columbia, Columbia International University, which is in Columbia, South Carolina. For two decades, he was the president of that organization. And then much to the shock of the board of trustees for that university, at the height of his career, he quit and became a homemaker for his wife, who had Alzheimer's. His wife, Muriel, had been diagnosed in 1981, and by 1990, she was to the point where her terror was so great when he was not in the room. But if he was in the room, she was calm. She was okay. And um, he said he had made a promise not to the university, but to her. His promise, till death do us part, was not to Columbia, but to Muriel. And so he laid aside his glory, you could say, as university president, and he became caregiver for her for 13 years, and the last 10 of which she didn't even recognize him. Um, but listen to this decision in his own words. I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions. But uh, one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one, because circumstances dictated it. Uh, Muriel, now, uh, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me, and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror. And when she can't get to me, there can be anger. She's in distress. But when I'm with her, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And I'm a man of my word. But, as I have said, I don't know with this group, but I've said publicly, it's the only fair thing she sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So, if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly. And you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. So five years into his caring for her, his retirement, he reflected on the course that their lives had taken. And he said this, 17 summers ago, Muriel and I began our journey into, he calls it the twilight. It's midnight now, which sounds like an unfortunate middle to me. And then he says this, yet in her silent world, Muriel is so content, so lovable. If Jesus took her home, how I would miss her gentle, sweet presence. So he laid aside, with all this authority, he laid aside his role as president 
to care for his wife. The glory of the presidency was laid aside, which reminds me of Jesus who laid aside heaven, laid aside his divinity to make himself nothing, to take on the very nature of a servant, to be found in human likeness, and then to, be hum to humble himself and to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that is what we celebrate as we come to the table. Well, let's pray as we close. God, thank you for your love, for your grace, that you see, that you know, that you care about each nook and cranny of our lives. God, I pray that you would help us to step into the light of your presence, your knowledge, and your love with courage that we would not be afraid, that we would find healing there, that our sense of self, our self-concept would be rooted in you and who you say we are. And God, that that would be our anchor, that that would be our mooring so that we might turn around, not just so that we could feel better, God, but so that we might turn around and live stories that are inspiring Stories where there is no fear of rejection in relationship and there is no fear of rejection vocationally and there is no fear of rejection in the missions you call us to, God, that you would make us lighthouses, that we would be people of presence in this world because we're clear about who we are. We are loved by you. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Everybody who agreed said amen. amen.